welcome to part six of Suit Up. Uh, if you missed last week's sermon, Tammy did an amazing job and I'm encouraging you to go to www.viewchurchmilneton.co.za and please watch the sermon. Now, her sermon began with a clip of a very funny guy trying to put on a knight's armor. <laughs> and it was so funny because this guy could, couldn't just function in society. But then Tammy told us that that's not what the armor is meant to do. The armor is meant to equip us so that we can take a stand against the enemy. Basically, what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians is he's just using it as a rhetorical device and as a metaphor in order to communicate to the Ephesians or the believers that they need to embrace truth, righteousness, sanctification, faith, salvation, and scripture and use it as armor in order to take a stand against the enemy. And so we are continuing today with another piece of armor, which is the helmet of salvation. Ephesians 6:17, just the first part, it says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But I like how it says it in the Passion Translation. Uh, listen to this. Embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance like a helmet to protect your thoughts from lies. And take the mighty razor-sharp uh, sword of the spirit, uh, of the spoken word, sorry. So this one, I prefer it because it's conveying the sense of what was really happening in the picture that Paul was trying to paint. It's a picture of a soldier dressing up, getting ready for battle. And besides him is an armor-bearer who had pieces of armor that he was handing to him. So he was supposed to receive them and put them on. So only in this case, the armor bearer is not a human being, but God who is handing to us the armor, um, the helmet of salvation, and we need to receive it. So that is such a profound thing. We need to take it. That's why I like what, how it says it. It says, embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance like a helmet to protect your thoughts. Now, before we, could, we can go further, uh, I just want to look at the definition of salvation. What is salvation? The original word translated salvation means deliverance from danger, destruction, or peril. In its fullest sense, it has inherent concepts of, uh, that include uh, restoration to a state of safety, soundness, health, well-being, physical deliverance from the danger of perishing. And the English word salvation comes from a Latin uh, word salvare, which means to make safe, secure, and to save. It is from this same word that we, we get the word, the English word salvage. Now, to salvage is to save from utter ruin, from destruction or harm. Uh, in other words, to recycle. Now, the bottom line of uh, this message today is this, that we must wear 
salvation like a helmet in order to protect our thought life as we take a stand against the enemy. So I want us to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. May the entrance of your word bring light, bring life, bring deliverance to us today. We thank you, God, for it's available to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the most incredible and trustworthy statements that you will ever hear in your whole lifetime is this, that God loves you, that God loves me. In Ephesians 3, verse 18 to 19, Paul prayed for the Ephesians that God will give them the strength to comprehend with all the sense what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Such an incredible statement that God loves us. Having created us, his love is ever reaching out toward us. It's incredible to just know that the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in it loves you and me as if we were, as, as if I were the only person in the world. Now, let me just attempt to demonstrate how big a deal, how big a deal this statement is by taking away some of the misunderstandings and, and illusions that I find many people have about the love of God. It can be summed up uh, under two simple questions. Why does God love us? And how does God love us? Let's start with the first one. Why does God love us? Here, the greatest misunderstanding is this, that he loves me because I'm lovable. It's amazing how many people believe that, how many people think that, that God looks at me and he says, isn't he nice? I'm attracted to him. I love him because he's lovable. But wherever did we get that idea? We think of ourselves so highly that, that we think God must love us because we're such nice people, such good people. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because when God looks at me, he looks into my heart. He doesn't see a nice person. He sees a messed up person. He doesn't see a holy person like himself, but a horrible person, most unlike himself. See, if you could see yourself the way God sees you, you would never come to this mistaken conclusion that he loves you because you deserve it and because you are lovable. But why does God love you? The old Greek gods were said to, to, be, to, to love people because they were attracted to them. Primarily, it was the uh, male Greek gods that were attracted to female human beings because there was something in the human beings that attracted their love. But that's not why God loves us. I say it reverently. God can go on being perfectly loving in eternity without me. 
See, the answer is not in us. The answer is in himself. He loves me, he loves you because he is love. That's who he is. And in all the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, all the words they had for love were of a love that was attracted to some, for some reason or to some kind of a, 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 a equality within the person being loved. Whether it was a bad thing like lust or a good thing like love of a brother or a sister, it was always because there was something in the person that attracted that love. There was only one word in the Greek language for a love that meant uh, a love that you could have for a person who had nothing in them to attract your love. And that word was hardly ever used in Greek conversations because such a love was not known among people. Human love always has to be attracted by equality in the one loved. I'll tell you this word. It's the word agape. Or if you come from a small town where, a town where I grew up, it is uh, agape, love. And they hardly ever used this word because they didn't know a love like this. But when the followers of Christ came preaching and they scratched their heads and looked for a Greek word that will explain God's love, they scratched their heads and rescued this word from almost total disuse. And they went on preaching saying, God agapes you, not because you are lovable, but because he is love himself. He can't deny himself. And his love, when it comes to you, when you receive this love, it's the one that will create in you what's lovable. But it's not there to begin with. And I know, I know, it's humbling to be told this, especially if you have such a high opinion of yourself. But God loves you because God is love. He loves me because he is love himself. Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God loves me because he is love and he cannot deny himself. Second question, how does God love us? Again here, I have to clear away the, 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 the debris of human ideas before we get to the truth. Because human thinking about the love of God is this, that God's love is a sentimental, sloppy sympathy, a love that simply turns a blind eye when we sin, a love that allows us to indulge any appetite we wish and says, there, there, boys will be boys, you know. A love that says, I've got a place for you in heaven. You can go on enjoying and living anyhow you want. But that's not love. See, I remember as a little boy <laughs> looking at a certain household, uh, uh, friends of ours. Their parents allowed them to do anything. They, when they were angry, they would break plates and windows. They would pour paint into the stove and they would go, oh, they're just being kids, you know. And I used to admire these guys because they, 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 they were never... I never saw their parents reprimanding them or disciplining them because when it came to our household, my mother would give you a look. 
<laughs> she will give you the look, and then she will give you the, the warning. And if you don't listen, because, you know, we were five of us, and we were strong-willed kids, and that's when she would take the board of education to apply to the seat of learning, you know. <laughs> but that was discipline. And now, in this time when I'm raising my own kids, I know that if you just watch and never discipline, <laughs> That's a sloppy, sentimental sympathy. And we think the love of God is like that. That he will let us do anything we want and that he will get us to heaven in the long run. If that's true, it diminishes the justice of God. It diminishes the holiness and the perfectionism of God. A perfectionism that's determined to eradicate anything that is ungodly in this universe. A perfection that punishes everything that is wrong. Do you know what God's problem was? God's problem was this, that he loved sinners, but he hated the sin. His problem was that how to get the two separated such that when he destroyed sin, he, he needn't destroy the sinner. What did he do then? He paid the price. And praise be to God. He knew the perfect answer to the problem. And the only answer he had was that the only son he had from all eternity should die for us on the cross. And you know what? There can be no Christianity without the cross of Jesus. There is no true relationship with God that does not begin beneath its shadow. Romans 3, 22 to 23 says, there's no distinction for all of us. All humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that uh, 6.23, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But he has provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. And in Romans 10 verse 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. When you are saved, you are brought into the way of salvation. Now, the way of salvation, this is how the Christians in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, this is what they called, what we call Christianity today. They called it the way. It is the way of life. And, and it paints a picture of not just a line that you cross from being non-Christian to being Christian, but to, to a journey that you start and you start walking on a journey. So now, let's say something about the way. It has a starting point and a journey, and, and that journey has a beautiful ending. Now, these three stages are called justification, sanctification, and glorification. Don't be intimidated. <laughs> justification. Let's talk about justification. It's a legal term opposed to condemnation. And as regards its nature, it is a judicial act of God by which he pardons all the sins of those who believe in Christ and accounts 
accepts and treats them as righteous in the eye of the law, in his righteous requirements. In short, justification is deliverance from the penalty of death, or of sin, sorry, which is death, eternal death. God declares you and me just as if we never sinned and we are given a clean start at the beginning of the journey in the way of salvation. Ephesians 2 um, verse 1 says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Jumping to verse 4, it says, But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by grace that you have been saved. Only by grace that you have been saved. And you are, God sees you and he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus on your life, and he declares you just as if you never sinned. The next thing is sanctification. Sanctification is a process. And the definition is this. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing the whole nature, the human nature, more and more under the influences of the new gracious principles implanted in the soul at the time we become born again. In short, sanctification is a, is, is a deliverance from the power of sin, which is transformation by the renewing of the mind. Because this is what happens. Not only does Jesus take my place in death, justification, but he takes my place in life as well because he puts his life inside of me and now I can say it's no longer I who lives by, but, but Christ lives inside of me and his life begins to remold me until I am perfect and fit for glory which is the next uh, stage glorification and in sanctification, Jesus is not only our savior, as if we're just jumping a line from being non-Christian to, to being Christian, but he's also our Lord who dictates to us, who tells us how we should live, and we surrender in honor and appreciation of what he has done for us. So he is savior and Lord. What is glorification? The third thing, the happy ending. Glorification is deliverance from the possibility of sinning, and it, is not, it has not yet happened. Um, so it is deliverance from the possibility of sinning, and you are completely free from sin. Now, look at this. It is the way of salvation. It starts with being justified, declared righteous before God, and then you begin to walk and you are sanctified and God is progressively making you better and better and better as you continue to submit to him. But there is coming a time when we shall see him, we shall see Christ when he returns and we shall be just like him. Have a look at what 1 John 3 says. Beloved, we are God's children right now. However, it is not yet apparent what we will become. But we do know that when it is finally made visible, we will be just like him, for we will see him as he truly is. And all who focus their hope on him, 
always will be purifying themselves just as Jesus is pure. Friends, I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that time to come when we shall be just like him, free from possibility of sinning because we will have bodies that will not have propensities to sin. That is how the way of salvation will end. Look at this, uh, uh, this chapter, this uh, passage, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8 in the Passion Translation. It says, but since we belong to the day, we must stay alert and clear-headed by placing the breastplate of faith and love for our hearts and the helmet of the hope of salvation for our thoughts. For God has not destined us to experience wrath, but to possess salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. Wow. Friends, justification, sanctification, and glorification. These are the truths that God's, God wants us to embrace and use as a helmet. This is a truth that we need to wear like a helmet on our minds. Because here's the thing, when the enemy begins to wage war against you, he is going to remind you of all the mess that you've ever done. He's going to tell you that you were molested, that you are an addict, that you are divorced and you will never amount to anything. But this is what you need to take. You need to take the truth of God's word and look at what he has done for you. He has paid the price, the penalty of sin. That separation that was there is no longer there because you are reconciled to him. He has paid the price and you stand justified in the eyes of God as if you never sinned. And as you continue to walk, you may make mistakes, you may falter, you may sin here and there, but... God has provided a means for us to still be reconciled to him because the price that he paid was paid once for all. This is something we need to cover our thought life with. When the enemy comes to you and tries to defeat you by telling you how horrible you are, you need to use this helmet and put it on your head and cover, cover your thought life saying, Jesus is renewing me. And there's coming a time when there'll be no possibility of sin because when I see him, I shall see him as he really is. Friends, this is worth celebrating that God has provided a helmet of salvation to cover our thought life. When a bad thought comes, we need to remind ourselves and say, God has saved me from sin. He has saved me from all of the things. See, that's why it's important for us to actually uh, uh, do the freedom course because it sets you on this way of salvation. So for those of you that want to do freedom, please go for it because it will help you. It will give you a clear, clear understanding of how the way of salvation works, that there is no condemnation unto you because you are in Christ, that, that the love of God has drawn you and that God, uh, through Jesus Christ, has paid the price. That's why Ephesians 6.17 is saying in the Passion Translation, embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance like a helmet to protect your thoughts from lies. The enemy will bring lies, but you need to wear it. Wear it like a helmet on your mind to protect your thought life.
Now, how do we respond to a message like this? I believe there are two responses, two kinds of responses that are appropriate to a message like this. For the believer, the believer needs to receive what God has provided, the benefits, privileges, and advantages over the enemy that wages war against us. We need to receive them. And for that person who's saying, I am not a Christian, but I want to be a Christian, but these ideas seem, they sound nice and all of that, I will come to you because uh, uh, you need to, to respond by surrendering. So the true responses are receive and surrender. Let's talk a little bit about receiving. For you, the believer, the child of God, you need to embrace what Christ has provided for you. Receive it. Accept what he has fully paid for. It is yours. It's available. And him as the armor bearer, because remember, we are taking a stand against the enemy. He is, uh, God is the armor bearer who's providing for you a helmet of salvation to fit over your head so that your thought life is being transformed, is being renewed, and you can challenge the enemy like Tammy was saying last week. Uh, you can challenge the enemy with the sword of the Spirit and actually say, God is working in me and, and I'm being transformed and I'm not what I used to be. I'm not yet what I will be, but I'm better. I'm on the way of salvation and you can do that. See, we must wear salvation like a helmet in order to protect our thought life as we take a stand against the enemy. The second response is the response of the person that says, I don't know Jesus. I don't even know if this salvation is even for me. I want to, I want to invite you by telling you a story a true story, events that actually took place, is a story of a young girl who set out from the Midlands of England. She went to London to find life, and she had a great time. She enjoyed herself. She partied so much. After a while, she forgot about her parents. She, she cut communications. Now, remember, this is in a time when there was no WhatsApp. There was nothing like uh, email and phones were quite a fancy thing back then. So she enjoyed her life. And after a while, she actually discovered that the life that she thought was real life was sinking her down and down and down to a place where she got so depressed that she, she just wanted to end her life. And she went to the, to the embankment of the River Thames and she wanted to just throw herself off the cliff and just, and just end it. But before she could go on with her plan, a thought came into her mind and she thought, hmm, let me just write my parents uh, and, and ask them to see if they would have me back. So she wrote, would you have me back? And she said, if you would, hang something white on the apple tree at the bottom of the garden. Now the, the apple tree, the, the garden was very close to the train tracks. And she said, hang something white on the apple tree and I'll come home by train. And when I'll look outside the window, and if I see something white hanging on the apple tree, 
I will know that you still want me back. So she started off on the train and she got closer to, to the spot where she could see the apple tree. And when she saw the apple tree, she could hardly look. The tree was covered with pillow slips, handkerchiefs, curtains, anything white that the parents could find in the house. They covered the whole tree in order for her to see it from far away. If you look at the cross, you will see that God has hung it with a lot of love. And he's saying to you, I want you back. Look, I want you back. I am a holy God. I am a perfect God. And I cannot overlook your sin. But look, I, I paid, my son paid for it. My son paid for you to be reconciled to me. I dealt with sin. Now you and sin can be separated because of the death of my son. That is the message to you, my friend. If you are saying, I, I, I want to come into this family, I want to know Jesus, this is the entry point. His love is welcoming you, is reaching for you. And if you are that person, just surrender and receive the love of Christ today. If you are saying, I want to receive this love, this salvation, I want you to pray this prayer after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner, but I now know that you have paid for my sin. Lord, I say to you, forgive me of my sins. Give me a new life. Start me out on a way of salvation. I believe that you died for me. I confess you, Lord and Savior. And from today onwards, I will live a life pleasing you. I thank you for what you've done for me. In your name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, you've been translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his marvelous light. Receive what he has provided for you. It is yours in Jesus' name. Amen.